Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to be here this morning. I hope you are all enjoying a little post-Christmas relaxation right now. The shopping is done. The gifts have all been opened. The cooking has been finished and the pressure is off. Now we can all just relax for a while. I wish I could see all of you so I could ask, who makes New Year's resolutions? Anybody? I love New Year's resolutions. I'm a perpetual optimist. I love the idea that you can take anything and make it better. One of my favorite shows to watch is Flea Market Flip on HGTV. My husband calls it junk for suckers. But the way the show works is they find a piece of trash, they paint it, glue on some popsicle sticks or pom-poms, then they resell it for a bunch of money. What's not to like? My husband has learned to ask before throwing away perfectly good trash because I might want to try to make something out of that or, you know, save it for five years in case I think of a way to paint it and throw some glitter on it and make it not trash. That's what I love about New Year's resolutions. I love the idea that I can take the trashy parts of my life and make them into something beautiful. Problem is, New Year's resolutions don't usually last very long, do they? Some of mine I've managed to keep up for a while, like do one thing at a time. Referring to craft projects so that my house doesn't look like a tornado went through the craft store and dropped it all in my house. But eventually, reality crashes into my good intentions. So sometimes I do what my friend does. And by about February or March, she just changes her New Year's resolutions to whatever it is she's actually doing, like do five or six projects at a time. But New Year's resolutions are interesting because we all have things that we need to work on a little bit. We're all a bit of a fixer-upper. None of us are perfect. And if you think you are, maybe ask your spouse or your kids or anyone who lives with you. They might have some suggestions. But change is hard. It's hard to be more patient or to not get angry or to show loving attention to people who are irritating or to not be offended by people when they're being offensive. We read a lot of verses in the New Testament about what we should and shouldn't do, and we believe that we should behave that way, right? But how do we do it? The way we approach change generally falls into three strategies. We try harder, we give up, or we use indirection. Try harder is our first instinct because that's what we're taught at home, at school, at work. We should do better. We should try harder. We should resolve to do better. As though we can strain our way into patience and generosity and joy. There's a lot of reasons why try harder works. It really appeals to us when we find out ways that we can make it work and we have some success. When we do get something right from trying harder, it's great, isn't it? Because we get to feel self-righteous. Our good behavior, our ability to check things off a list is very satisfying. I love checking things off a list 
Sometimes I'll go back and put things I've done on my to-do list just so I can check them off. We can develop really good filters for our behavioral responses, for the things we say, and we can become quite smug and judgmental of other people whose filter isn't as good as ours. But the big problem with a filter, of course, is that eventually they fail. Eventually we are tired or hungry or stressed and our filter breaks. We say or do things that are angry or hurtful or judgmental. And we blame our outbursts on the circumstances or the people around us as though they have forced our hand. But the problem with that is that if something comes out of us, it was in there to begin with. You don't open a can of root beer and pour out coffee. In Luke 6:45, Jesus said it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And our well-meaning friends who suffer from this same problem of a faulty filter will often rush to say, nobody's perfect, as a way to make us feel better about our behavior or our words. Perhaps we snapped at someone who gets under our skin. And our friends will assure us that this response is understandable because no one is perfect. And that's true. We aren't perfect. We do mess up. And when we mess up badly enough or often enough, we go to the second strategy. We give up. Because that's what nobody's perfect is really saying, that we aren't going to get it right. And we just have to rely on grace and forgiveness. Some people call this brokenness. In the old days, we called it worm theology. I'm just a worm. I can't do anything good. I'm just a sinner. It's what I do. I sin. And just like trying harder, this brokenness has truth in it. We do rely on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and we do live by grace. The state of brokenness or recognizing our tendency to sin, our need for God, is an important step in coming to Christ, in putting our trust in him. But we're not meant to stay there. We shouldn't live there. Because the problem with brokenness is that we're resigned to where we are. We don't ever get better. We don't really change much at all. Why are we told we should do all these glorious things like serving others with joy and forgiving anyone who offends us if we can't really do it? Why does 2 Corinthians 3.18 say, the Lord makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image, if that's not really possible? Sometimes we combine this sort of spiritual giving up, this resignation, with the idea that God might hit us with a stick and just make us loving or joyful or patient, and we won't have to do anything. I suppose God could do that, but he doesn't, not usually. We don't just drift into being more loving or less angry. God doesn't hit us with a patience stick and pow, we have patience. I wish, it sounds a lot easier. 
But what if instead of saying nobody's perfect, our friend said to us, I believe in the power of God to make you into the kind of person who shows loving attention, even to those who get under your skin. What if they said, I believe that you can know, learn to know your creator and become like him. That's Colossians 3.10. That kind of response is so encouraging and so full of hope. Because the other problem with being self-righteous, with trying harder, is that we're so full of shame when we fail. And then our reaction is to cover it up instead of acknowledging it. It becomes so important to look good instead of being real about our struggles when it's all based on our effort. That's another little truth from the try harder strategy. There is effort involved in growth. We do have to participate, but it isn't earning because that's what trying harder is about, earning. As though God will love us more or be more with us if we behave better. Scripture tells us that's not how it works. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. Romans 5. And having placed our trust in Jesus for our salvation, we also trust Jesus for how we live now. The Bible uses two phrases to describe how we live now. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. It's like a matryoshka doll. You guys have seen these, right? You know how they work? I love these Russian nesting dolls. You open it up, there's another one inside. And normally you open her up and there's another one until you have a whole line of them. Today we're just going to use two. Whether you look at it as I'm in Christ or Christ is in me, no matter where I go or what I do, Christ is there with me the whole time. I don't just pop out and go my way and come jump back in. I don't take him out and set him aside while I'm over here doing whatever and then coming back. Even if we're doing something we know we shouldn't be doing, even if we're sinning, Christ is there with us. He doesn't climb out and go sit in the corner and wait for us to come to our senses and apologize before he takes us back. No, whatever I do with this doll, the other doll is with it. If I pitch it into a fire, they both burn. So just like we don't earn our salvation, Scripture says many times it is a free gift of God. We also don't earn God's love. We don't behave our way into his good graces. We don't give up and live in defeat either. So that leads us to our third approach, indirection. It's kind of a funny idea, indirection, but it makes perfect sense once we think about what it means. If I decided one day that it would be a really great idea for me to play Beethoven's Fifth or maybe to speak Spanish, I wouldn't be able to do either of those things just by trying hard. I can't sit down at a piano and try really hard and suddenly play beautiful music. I can't speak a new language by wondering when it will suddenly spring to life on my tongue. We learn how to speak Spanish or how to play Beethoven's Fifth by indirection. That is, we learn to do something we can't do by doing what we can. We 
learn to play scales, we learn how to read music, and we become the type of person who can play a beautiful piece of music. We learn vocabulary and pronunciation and sentence structure, and we become the type of person who can speak Spanish. It's training instead of trying. That's what training is. It's doing something you can do so that you can do something you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. That's indirection. We can train smarter instead of trying harder. So how do we train? We live in Christ. The New Testament tells us over and over again we need to live in Christ. Here's some verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, and 17 says, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. Everyone who receives his new life will no longer live for themselves, but will live in Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, Throw off your former way of life. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And Romans 12:2, Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And John 15:4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I abide in you. And abide just means live. Sometimes we translate it as remain or dwell. But Jesus is saying, live in me as I live in you. The more we keep ourselves centered on Jesus, the more we focus on him instead of ourselves, the more we center our awareness on his presence with us, the more we will learn to become the kind of person who shows loving attention even to those who annoy us. If we have put our trust in Jesus, we are already in Christ, and Christ is in us. We can put our effort toward that relationship. Instead of putting our efforts toward a checklist of do's and don'ts to be righteous, we can focus on Christ's righteous presence with us, and that will change us. When we are keeping our view on God, Anyone else who comes into our view, we will see differently. When we do our normal daily life things with an awareness that Christ is doing them with us, we begin to shift the way we do them. Jesus is with us anyhow, whether we pay attention to him or not. Whether we talk to him or not, he is there. While we're driving to work or paying the bills or fixing dinner or whatever we're doing, we can learn to pay attention to his presence with us. We can renew our minds and change the way we think so that we are conscious of doing life with Christ all the time. And it does take effort, especially at first. We're not used to talking to God about everything we're doing all day long. But effort is good. Effort is not the same as earning, so we don't want to get them confused. Effort is an appropriate response to grace. Earning is how we try to get grace. But effort is really just what we pay attention to. Paying attention to something or someone is effort. We have to pay attention in order to have a relationship. Relationships are not about earning, but they are about effort. If we're married, we don't high-five our spouse before meals and 
have a cursory conversation once a week and think that we're doing life together. Sometimes we read something in scripture like, pray without ceasing, and we think, I can't do that. But do you know how to worry? Then you know how to pray. Worry is great for teaching us how to pray because we can train ourselves to direct those obsessive thoughts toward God instead of just toward ourselves. We can talk to him about whatever it is we're worrying about. And as it keeps coming up, we can keep talking with him about it. And we listen. Dr. Shannon Lamb spoke with us last month about hearing God and how we can learn to hear his voice. Pastor Eric likes to say, eyes on Jesus. We can train ourselves to continually turn our eyes off ourselves and on to the one who will never leave us. That interior monologue we have, we can learn to shift that to being a conversation with God rather than just ourselves. And we can intentionally abide. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we become like him. Put on your new nature as you learn to know your creator and become like him. We also just went through a series called The Walk, where we talked about spiritual disciplines. And that's just a fancy name that means training. That's how we train smarter instead of trying harder. Just like music or Spanish, we aren't going to naturally drift from being a couch potato into running a marathon. And we can't just get up one day and try really hard. I wonder how far we'd make it before we just fell over. We have to train. And we train spiritually by paying attention to Jesus. That's all spiritual disciplines or religious practices are about. If that's not what they're about, then we're back to earning. We're just checking things off a list, being pleased with ourselves for praying or reading the Bible, instead of realizing that the only purpose for those things is to experience Christ more in our lives. He's there if we've put our trust in him, but we may not be experiencing him. And the more we experience him, the more we express him. I love Colossians 3.10, as you learn to know your creator and become like him. The Greek word know in this sentence means to know through experience. It doesn't mean to know about. We learn to experience Christ and then we become like him. We express him. We naturally begin to act out that which is within us, Christ. We act the way he would act, with love and joy and peace and patience, all those fruits of the Spirit. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. In direction, we let our experience of Christ, his love, his peace, his joy, transform the way we express ourselves to others. Instead of gritting our teeth and trying harder to love others, we become the kind of person who naturally loves others, even disagreeable others. If we trust Jesus enough to save us when we die, we should trust him enough to change us until we get there. 
So how about a practical example? Let's say there's a difficult situation. Since we just went through the holidays, although we were probably socially distant this year, let's think about that in-law who just grates on our nerves and we dread seeing during the holidays. How can I approach that situation while abiding in Christ? An easy way to start is by being thankful. To be thankful is to acknowledge that God is there. So I can say, here I am, and here you are, Jesus, and I'm going to look for whatever is good and true and honorable in this situation. I'm going to find it and build on it with your help. I'm thankful that you're here with me. Life is hard. You have to live through it anyway. So fill your world with God. Life is hard, but it's easier with Jesus. In Matthew 11.30, Jesus said, My yoke is easy. Now you guys know what a yoke is, right? Traditionally, a yoke is two leather collars and a wooden beam. And it's how you would attach your oxen or your horses to the plow or to the carriage so that they can pull it. And the way that they would teach a young ox or a young horse to pull in a yoke is they would put them on one side. And they still do this. If you drive out towards Lancaster, you can see the farmers with their draft mules usually in a yoke pulling a plow. So they have their young mule on one side and on the other side they put their most stable, reliable, experienced mule. And it doesn't take too many trips up and down the field before the young one gets the idea and knows what they're supposed to do. Jesus says to us, get in here. Get in here with me. You can learn how to do it by doing it with me. Living closely with God, intentionally abiding with him, will make you the best version of yourself and you will live the most enjoyable version of your life. It won't make you or me perfect. We'll always need God, but it will transform us a whole lot better than New Year's resolutions. Now, if this is something that you're interested in learning more about, I have a couple of books to recommend to you for further reading. Um, one is a little bit um, old-fashioned. It's Practicing His Presence. It's by Frank Laubach and Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a monk who lived in the 1600s, and Frank Laubach was a missionary in the 1930s. And this is just a little collection of some of their um, letters, primarily, um, for how they learned to become aware of God all the time in their lives. And the other book that I would recommend is called Hidden in Christ. It's by James Bryan Smith. It's a 30-day devotional. It's really um, fantastic. And it's all about how you can learn to make a habit in your regular daily life for abiding intentionally with Christ. So I recommend those two if you're interested. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are always with us and that we can learn how to live the best version of our life 
by living it with you. Thank you for giving us your word filled with so much inspiration and encouragement that we can look to you instead of relying on ourselves to have a full and joyful and meaningful life. Be with all of us as we look forward to the new year and we move forward in whatever you have for us. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.